listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and welcome back to Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This podcast is produced by Kobe, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with support from the Alt Lab at VCU and the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for Why Science is provided by Butcher Brown. Stream their new EP, Virginia Noir, at butcherbrown.bandcamp.com. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Salvatore, an assistant professor in the psychology department at VCU and a behavioral genetics researcher who focuses on the genetic and environmental links between relationships and substance use. Thank you all for joining us today in the studio. We have Jessica Salvatore, who is a researcher in the EDGE Lab. Jessica, tell us a little bit about what you do here at VCU. Hi. Um, So I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology, and I do work on romantic relationships and substance use using a genetically informed perspective. So how did you first get interested in psychology? I know you studied that for your undergraduate degree. Did you come into college knowing that that was something you wanted to do? I actually didn't think that I would study psychology when I first started college at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, which is where I went for undergrad. I originally thought that I was going to go into medicine, pre-medicine, and it really was my intro psychology class that changed my mind about that. I was really fascinated with the idea that you can study behavior from a scientific perspective and that there are actually principles underlying that behavior. It's not always the, you know, common thought things that drive our behavior, like, you know, birds of a feather flock together, that actually there are scientific ways to to assess whether that common knowledge has any truth behind it. So what was your ex- first exposure to that? Did you do research while you were an undergraduate? I did. I did research in a language laboratory as an undergraduate in Mija Vanderweg's lab. And what we were doing there was, or my task really, was primarily transcribing speech samples from participants in one of her language studies. So I spent a lot of time in front of the computer transcribing audio types. <laughs> a lot of your research now focuses on substance use and relationships in the context of gene environment interaction, like you were explaining earlier. When did that become a part of the research that you were doing? I would say that interest really grew out of my graduate training. So I did my PhD at the University of Minnesota under the mentorship of Andy Collins and Jeff Simpson. And there I was really interested in how people develop competence in romantic relationships. Now, the projects that I was working on in graduate school were primarily looking at how early experiences with parents and peers, how those experiences contribute to how people function in their romantic relationships in early adulthood. The idea being that patterns of emotion expression and regulation in earlier relationships underlie 
the way that we think and feel about our partners and interact with our partners later on in adulthood. Now, through this work, I became interested not only in romantic relationships as an outcome of development, but also in how relationships can serve as a developmental context themselves. How can they change people's trajectories of functioning, whether that be in terms of their emotional health, like their feelings of anxiety or depression, or their physical health in terms of how much they're drinking. And so my dissertation in graduate school focused on that question with respect to depression and anxiety symptoms. So what I was looking at there was whether romantic relationships in early adulthood can moderate or change the impact that early experiences have on trajectories of depression and anxiety in early adulthood. And in, fa in fact, we found exactly that. Even if you had poor early experiences in life, so if you were rejected or your mother was hostile, that if you were able to find yourself in a high-quality romantic relationship in early adulthood, that you had fairly low levels of anxiety and depression symptoms. So through that dissertation project, I really became interested in understanding the role of relationship processes in moderating risk. And risk in my dissertation was early environmental risk, caregiving experiences. But I became interested in the biological aspects of risk, particularly genetic predispositions towards things like drinking or other types of emotional and behavioral health outcomes. And so that's what brought me to my postdoc and working with Danielle Dick and Ken Kendler at the Virginia Institute for Psychiatric and Behavioral Genetics here at VCU. And so through my postdoctoral work, I got trained up on the types of tools and methods that behavior geneticists use to investigate gene-environment interaction or how one's environmental experiences, like being in a certain type of relationship or with a certain partner, how that can moderate one's predisposition for developing problems like alcohol problems. So it was sort of the accumulation of all of those experiences, my graduate training and my postdoctoral training that brings me to where I am today. So what does it mean for you on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the work that you do to be a behavioral geneticist? I feel like there's kind of like the crime shows on TV where everyone thinks it's the same person who's testing the DNA, who's running all the studies. So like what aspect of that work do you fit into? That's a great question because the type of work that a behavioral geneticist does can range from anything, you know, starting with wet lab bench work, you know, conducting genotyping, to the more, uh, you know, processing end of things, analyzing data or writing up papers based on the results obtained from the data analysis. Where I typically spend most of my time is on the data analysis and writing end. So most of the studies that I work with, the genotyping has already been conducted and is saved as data files, which I then use to conduct my analyses in conjunction with survey data, typically, that we've also collected on our participants. So when you're talking about previously genotyped data, where are the sources of that? I know there are some coming from within VCU and some outside of VCU. Yeah, so one of the, the nice things about the group that that I and we work in is that there's a lot of access to different types of genetically informative data sets. So for example, we have the Spit for Science project, which then has been collected here at VCU. 
And then we also, for example, work with the collaborative study on the genetics of alcoholism data. Now, that's a six-site national study. And so the data for that particular project is handled centrally. And, you know, on our end, what we do is download the data files of these processed, already processed genotypic data sets. And there's some international ones too, right? I know I was just reading a study that you published that was based on genetic data from the Swedish registry. Yeah. And that's uh, a more recent opportunity for me through uh, one of my mentors, Ken Kendler. And he works with collaborators in Sweden who, you know, they have access to these large population-based registries that are collected on every citizen in Sweden. And so it provides really excellent detailed information on individuals in Sweden. And you're able to, through those various registries, identify the genetic relationships between various individuals who live in Sweden. With these data sets, what kind of questions have you been asking in recent studies that you've published? So the study that you just mentioned was conducted again in the Swedish National Registers. And what we were able to do in that particular study was look at the genetic correlation between alcohol use disorder and divorce. So the question that we were asking is whether there are genetic influences that are shared between one's likelihood of developing an alcohol use disorder across their lifetime, as well as the likelihood that one might end up experiencing a divorce. And what we found in that study was that roughly half of the association between alcohol use disorder and divorce was explained by genetic factors. Within that study, one of the things that I found really interesting was when you were talking about a clinician who could be working with someone and how it would make sense for them to infer that if, you know, if someone was divorced first and then developed an alcohol use disorder, that there might be some kind of causal link. But finding that, you know, the sticking a step back and the underlying genetic factor behind both of those would explain better. Like, I could see how that would immediately have a lot of impact on interventions and being able to help people in that way. Yeah, I think, you know, the example that you cite there is is one that that I always keep in the back of my mind because just because something appeared before another thing doesn't mean that caused that outcome. Rather, you know, in this particular case, they could be both stemming from the same underlying source. It just, in this case, you know, shared genetic influences. But for one reason or another, someone either gets divorced first and then later they develop an alcohol use disorder whereas someone else might develop an alcohol use disorder and then get divorced. And in terms of other examples of of surprising results like that, well, I think one that, not research that was conducted by me, but that comes uh, from others in the field, is looking, for example, at early behavior problems and their association with later adult alcohol use problems. So you could say that, you know, kids who act up or, you know, have externalizing behaviors in adolescence, so do things like skipping class or, you know, setting fires or doing other sorts of vandalism or otherwise being aggressive, that earlier one could think that that was a causal risk factor for the development of later alcohol use disorders. But when you look at the genetic shared genetic architecture between those two outcomes, adolescent conduct disorder 
and adult alcohol dependence, what you find is that genetic factors explain most of that association. And so the idea here is that efforts to prevent adolescent conduct disorder, which I agree in general are good and are likely to have beneficial effects, but that in terms of actually reducing subsequent alcohol use disorders might not work so much because individuals still have that same predisposition. And to the extent that preventive interventions only reduce conduct problems, that doesn't necessarily have a, a causal impact on their likelihood of developing an alcohol use disorder. So what you're saying is it's more like treating a symptom instead of treating the cause. Exactly. So changing gears a little bit, you've taught some really interesting classes during your time at VCU. And I wanted to talk to you about a class that you did on the nature and nurture of sports performance. Where did the idea for that class come from? And what were kind of your objectives for the students when you were teaching that? So that was a special course that I designed as part of an opportunity here on campus to develop innovative coursework regarding the UCI Road World Cycling Championships. And I felt like this was a, a unique opportunity to give students the chance to use behavioral genetic methods and scientific thinking to investigate whether people are, you know, world-class athletes because of their training, so their nurture, or whether there are certain factors, such as their genetic predispositions, that make them more likely to perform at this high level. And so the goal was for students to be able to understand the genetic and environmental influences on sports performance and to be able to understand how genetic methods can be used to potentially identify the genes and genetic variants that contribute to sports performance. And I know there's another class that you're teaching right now that's really interesting that is themed around the underlying links between love and addiction and portrayal in popular media. Yeah, so this class I'm, I'm really excited about and I've enjoyed working so much with the students over the past few weeks as, as we've been exploring this topic. The idea behind this course was to allow students to the opportunity to think scientifically about the common media portrayals of love and substances of abuse, both in songs, TV shows, uh, movies, etc. Because we really are surrounded by media portrayals of love and addiction. And the idea was, is there any truth to those, those portrayals? And what kind of scientific evidence is there either in support of or contradicting some of those media portrayals. So we've been exploring these themes from a number of different perspectives, looking, for example, at the effects of drinking on relationship satisfaction and relationship conflict, and also vice versa, the effects of relationship satisfaction and conflict on drinking, the neurobiological components that may be similar to the feeling of romantic love and romantic euphoria, to the feeling that someone also might have when when they use cocaine or when they use heroin. And the other element that we're exploring is how relationship science can be harnessed to improve prevention and intervention efforts for substance use disorder. How can what we know about relationships help us deliver better and more effective treatments to individuals 
who are suffering from these problems. What excites you about being in this field right now? Are there specific research questions that you're really interested in or are there specific opportunities to network with clinicians and interventions? Like what gets you up in the morning and tells you that like there's a lot to look forward to in your field? Relationship science is still a very young science, which means that there are a lot of unexplored questions. And what I find personally meaningful about the work that I do is that, you know, this is a context that is very powerful for changing people's behavior and understanding how that context comes together with genetic predispositions. For me and from what I read in the literature, you know, these are very new and recent questions, you know, within the past 30 years have only really begun to be explored. So there's a lot more to find out. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck with your work and your classes moving forward. Thanks. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for a new episode of Why Science every other Thursday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our home website, kobe.vcu.edu. Take care. <laughs>